Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet, which as I've been reporting for a year and a half, is obviously still wrapped in a pandemic. Uh, the world is only about, I think the latest figure I saw, 13% fully vaccinated. So it's a little over a billion out of 7.8 billion people have been vaccinated. And in the United States, there are still these pockets of vulnerability. We'll be talking about vulnerability a lot today. Um, and I, on this show, Sustain What webcast, I've been I spent much of last year focused on that challenge and that risk, um, but I'm increasingly getting back to my old domain of climate. And I'm trying here to amplify for folks um, who are caught up too simplistically sometimes in the idea of a climate emergency or climate crisis, that until you get behind phrases like that, you're really just paralyzed. And one way to do that is to use an age old technique that those focused on disaster risk use all the time, which is to break things into risk. What's the hazard? What's the exposure to the hazard and who is vulnerable? Not everybody who's exposed is vulnerable. That's just like with, an, with the immunization. So, um, and there's a paper that came out this week uh, led by Beth Tellman, who's here, moving from Columbia University, postdoctoral work previously ASU, moving back to Arizona, University of Arizona, and one of the founders of uh, an amazing new entity called Cloud to Street, which is AI using uh, artificial intelligence and other means to sift data sets uh, and clarify for countries at risk and communities at risk how to reduce that risk on uh, issues like flooding particularly. Um, and also with me today will be, he's, he's coming on, uh, Salim Haq from uh, He's the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development, a longtime contact of mine in Bangladesh. And it's so funny, it's like I've waved a magic wand because I see he's in the green room. So here's Salim. Hi there. I literally, I just was saying your name, Salim. <laughs> and it was, it, poof, here you are. And, uh, <laughs> magic. Uh, you know, and you've been focused for a long time, as I was just saying, on this question of who's really at risk, and it, it, not only in a changing climate, but in a changing social system around, as we have around the world. Uh, and uh, Catherine Sutherland, who's coming from South Africa, she's a, a, a researcher, a professor in development studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. I'm sure I'm mangling that. Uh, and you'll be talking about some of the work you're doing at the granular scale, which is vital for this risk reduction. You know, climate change, you can slow 
but that doesn't change factors on the ground fast enough to really make a difference for communities right now. Simon Young, Senior Director at the global advisory company Willis Towers Watson. We'll learn more about your work in a second. And Jean-Martin Bauer, who spent a lot of time in the Republic of Congo. He's uh, the Senior Digital Advisor for the UN World Food Program. And again, formerly uh, the WFP Country Director in Congo. And you can help us, those of us who have not spent enough time on the African continent, disentangle the the Congo question, the Congos, <laughs> and to clarify where that is and what you're doing. Uh, it, it's just great to have you all here. So I hope you're all okay today. You know, the world is wrapped in all kinds of layers of risk. And uh, I'm in the Hudson River Valley, um, which is named for Henry Hudson, who just got here in 1609, but it's also Lenapia territory from far, far below. And I always recognize that as well. So Beth, we're going to start with you because a big hooray for you. Uh, five years or maybe more of work at what you call the your goal, your mission in life is socializing the pixel. I love that. I think I can't remember if that's on your LinkedIn page or somewhere. So you did a lot of that this week and this in this work. Um, so I'm just going to go back to the slides and welcome you to uh, this webcast. And and can you just explain briefly how you got this question in front of you and how you've started to answer it? Yeah. So it's been a long time coming, this paper. So <laughs> we actually, um, I was rereading our original grant proposal to Google Earth Engine in 2016 uh, for $100,000 last night. Um, and what we really wanted to do at that time was um, make more flood maps. The Dartmouth Flood Observatory had started to map floods with satellites. They'd been doing it actually for decades. It was an incredible resource for scientists and humanitarian aid agencies and people who were really trying to figure out where flooding was happening after it happened and where relief should go. But um, they just had a couple hundred maps in their archive and we wanted them all. Um, we wanted them all because we thought there was so much there to explore we wanted to generate new ways of understanding flood risk with machine learning. And you can't do that if you don't have a lot of data. And so we wanted to invest in making all of those flood maps and making them available to the public. Sure. So um, that's that's how it all that's how it all started. And um, we're so excited to release that now. Um, and, and and I'm really excited to talk <laughs> up here today about like now what, now what do we do when we have this new data? What do we do with satellite data? Because what matters is not just that flood exposure is growing. What matters is what we do about it. So I, I can't wait to hear everyone else's thoughts on the latter question. So uh, let's just get a little deeper into that, that particular point that uh, you found that tens of millions of people in the last 15 or so, maybe 20 years, have moved into flood zones, that zones that have been flooded in that same span, um, areas of implicit uh, risk. And that sort of cuts against some of the themes we've heard lately about climate migration and climate refugees. We, I thought everyone's moving out of these places. Yeah, well, we were actually surprised to find this too. It was sort of an accident, to be honest, that we found this. We did um, what, what my um, co-author John calls the pancake and smooshed together all of the flood maps we had constructed around the world. And then within that zone, looked at population data. And as we started just exploring the data and zooming around the world, we were like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You zoom into New Orleans and there's all these people that had left after Katrina 
and you see population declines, you know, in the Ninth Ward and those places. And then you zoom in to other places around urbanizing DACA and you see all of this population increase. And so we start to see these dynamics all, all around the world and realize that, you know, a, a couple of things are happening. One is that floods happen in places of really high population density. Dam breaks, for example, affect millions of people. Um, and often when we build dams and levees, we think we're safe. And so people then develop under those places. But if they're not maintained um, or there's a large release of water, then populations will be affected. So some of the places that we've seen floods happen um, have had really high increases of population growth. And we'll get into this a little bit later, maybe. But I yeah. think a lot of times it's because the land is is so cheap after it becomes flooded. And that becomes then available, unfortunately, um, for for people to move in who have no other no other means to live in more expensive, less hazardous land. And we'll go around the block here in a minute and get some reactions on, on these these phenomena. Um, there several of you also focus on uh, the systemic aspects of why people move and where they live. And often it's not by choice. There, there, there are people who probably moved into Shenzhou in China for jobs, uh, an opportunity, and ended up in the subway cars and flooded and uh, was more than a dozen killed. There are definitely people all around the world who are uh, essentially forced into zones of implicit danger. Uh, Salim, you, you, let's go to you and, and then uh, hear from Jean-Martin. Um, is it Jean-Martin? I keep, I don't have your, yeah, Jean-Martin and, and uh, Simon. So, so Salim, you know, you've lived in a country that's lived with epic flood risk for essentially forever, you know, from well before it was modern Bangladesh. And after those epic floods, uh, 1970, 70, that area, so much progress has been made on getting people out of flood hazards when when the hazard is there uh, what when you see this work what's the first thing that comes to mind well I, i'm very impressed by it i think it's very very useful so we, as you just said we have been making um incremental strides in being better and better at dealing with um flood warnings evacuations uh, and one of the big, uh, I would say, success stories in Bangladesh is the minimizing the number of deaths that we have had. Um, in decades past, when we'd had these big floods, the deaths would be in the tens of thousands. Uh, it's no longer the case. The deaths are uh, been brought down very, very significantly. And um, uh, we, do, we don't have that many. We just had a few days ago, we had a, a torrential... Uh, rainfall in uh, in the, the the hilly region that we do have in our country. Most of it is flat, but we do have some hills in the south uh, eastern part where the Rohingya refugees are living in very right. uh, scant uh, accommodation. And uh, a couple of families got killed in a landslide, um, and that you know we couldn't have predicted that. Uh, although other people were evacuated, they weren't. Uh, but we have been, um, I would say, very successful in uh, making uh, the information available as soon as we know it to give people warnings and making sure that everybody gets the warning and is assisted to um, uh, evacuate, you know, NGOs, uh, volunteers, Red Cross, Red Crescent volunteers, uh, are very well organized. So one of the 
a key criteria in my case, in in my view in Bangladesh, which is true for cyclones as well. In fact, for cyclones, it's even better. Floods are a bit more complicated. It's not that easy, but cyclones, you know, you can track them by satellite. You know they're coming, and people themselves can, on a smartphone, can just see the satellite themselves and figure out, I have two hours to get to the shelter uh, before it comes and hits me. Uh, but on floods, it's a bit more complicated uh, uh, to get that information, to know exactly where the water is coming and, and how much time you have. But nevertheless, we're getting better and better at doing that. And as I said, um, very successful in, in ensuring that uh, lives are not lost. Um, one big program for school kids, for example, is learning to swim. It's a big program to just teach them mm -hmm. to swim so that when the water comes, they know how to swim. Um, and then other things about, you know, how do, what do you take with you? Where do you go? Where the evacuation centers are? Um, but nevertheless, with climate change, there's going to be more of the floods and the population has increased. And as you said, people are living in uh, flood-prone, hazardous conditions quite knowingly. They know it's going to flood here at some point in the year. Um, in, in the coastal zone now, they're actually having tidal floods. You know, the water comes up with the tide and then it goes down and then it comes up to the house in, right. in the uh, with the tide. Uh, in Miami too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. A, a whole set of different kinds of uh, uh, flood conditions where um, the kind of information that, that Beth and her colleagues have been producing is extremely useful. The more granular it is, the more useful it can be. The more timely it is, the more useful it can be. And so to me, those are the two um, uh, parameters where we want our scientific colleagues uh, to improve and give us that information as quickly as possible. Warnings as, as, as quickly as you can give them, as, as long as a, a few days if possible, or even a few hours sometimes is good enough. Um, and also at a very granular level, so we can tell you know which households are the ones that need this information so we can get it to them. And as I said, the it, the flood will still come. It will still do a lot of damage. Um, right. But nevertheless, we can we can prevent the the worst from happening. Yeah, and that that this let's focus in on this granularity question. Um, I remember a number of years, well, not that long ago, a few years ago, Hurricane Dorian was a devastating slow motion grinder in the Bahamas, especially one island. And a lot of the media coverage was, you know, global warming, global warming. Uh, and just like within weeks, the government of the Bahamas was issuing press releases saying, no, no, it was just one island. It's just one community. We're still open for tourism. And it revealed to me pretty powerfully and to this writer at uh, the uh, Guardian who really nailed it, the poor are punished. Uh, that was a very rare and creditable story at that time. Among a lot of other coverage, it was just sort of generally saying, we have to stop global warming. And this gets to this point I've been trying to make for a long time, and I think some of you are really concerned about is we have to work on vulnerability reduction as, as hard as we have to work on emissions reduction because of, well, for many reasons. And, and maybe let's just go around the circle here to, again, maybe to uh, Jean-Martin. You've worked a lot in, in Congo, Republic of Congo. So what does this feel like? Uh, what's, the, what's the value of granularity when you think about the, the challenges faced there on the ground too? Thanks, Andy. And uh, you just mentioned the poor uh, were punished. Um, and that, that's really been the experience in Congo. And you need granular data to be able to detect uh, patterns in, in, in vulnerability. Uh, the aggregate doesn't 
really work in Congo for the reasons I'm about to explain. The flood-prone part of the country, and I'm talking about Republic of Congo, not the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're two right. different nations. One of them is on the right bank of the river, the other one on the left. Right. Um, but what you really want to um, understand is, is that this part of Congo is um, remote. Uh, it's um, it's where people are settle along the rivers. And the far northern part of Congo is actually uh, the homeland of uh, an indigenous population uh, called the Baka. Uh, we have the Lenape here in New York, but it's the Baka in Congo, and it's a mm -hmm. frontier society. Uh, and uh, when you look at the phenomenon of flooding and food insecurity in this area, what you need to understand is that the most flood-prone prone lands um, are not lands that uh, the Bantu majority control. Uh, those are the lands where the Baka farm or the lands where the refugees farm, because it's, again, a very specific area with refugees coming from different countries, from the Central Afri African Republic, which is next door, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is also next door. So you've got uh, a, a case here, northern Congo, along the Ubangi River Valley, where you've got uh, the intersection of climate change, conflict, and uh, environmental change due to, the, to, to logging and the exploitation of the forests there. And you need to get your data right or else you, you miss what's going on. It's, it's so far from uh, the, the rest of Congo that you travel by plane. Uh, the, until recently, there were no roads to, to get up to that part of Congo. So getting information about a crisis or getting information about uh, a fast-breaking emergency uh, is extremely difficult. And what uh, uh, really helped the World Food Program uh, with humanitarian response in the aftermath of flooding was data like what, what Beth and, and her colleagues have worked on. We were able to get granular data after, I would say, within a few days uh, of, a, of a major rainfall event. And we also get predictive maps, but um, I don't want to get into much of the detail. Yeah. We did have, in 2017, a small flood event in the north that affected about 5,000 people. And uh, we only found out about it after weeks uh, because the information systems weren't in place. And when you talk about vulnerability, part of the vulnerability is also the government systems, the information systems that are in place. And they're very weak. Uh, Congo has been going through a, a budget crush since uh, oil prices fell in 2014. There's just not the ability to invest in, in new systems and in new information systems that would help the government be more, uh, um, I'd say more flexible in terms of a, a disaster response. So what, what the data um, helped us do was identify those villages that have been affected by, by flooding in, in, in very quick water. Uh, it also helped us uh, map things out as the waters would move south from uh, the Central Africa, African Republic through the Congo River Valley down to the Atlantic, we were able to see uh, how vulnerability was, uh, well, how, how exposure to floods was, was, was changing uh, through time. And it also uh, helped um, launch a, an entire discussion on how flood management can be improved in a country like Congo, which, where you've got a dozen agencies involved in the, uh, in the process, where you've got UN agencies uh, also um, involved. Um, now, for the UN, what was really useful was having proof and uh, what cloud to street offers is proof uh, that something is going on and that helps mobilize the cash that's needed to deliver assistance mm -hmm. to places like northern congo really difficult to do uh to get international food aid to the north of congo it takes about six months wow. what we're able to do with the data that we got from cloud to street um was activate internal mechanisms uh and this this happened just last november we we're able to get a uh, million dollars to start cash transfers and cash transfers within a few days, they're, they're, they're dispersed to the population. So this is a way of doing things better. It's a way of understanding vulnerability better and kickstarting a response uh, that's, again, hopefully 
better than what we used to do uh, just a few years ago. So that's that's really the delta uh, we're dealing with here, but not uh, high that flooding in a place like uh, the north of Congo, as I just described, is a huge issue. Uh, it's way beyond emergency response. Uh, it's way beyond uh, even climate change adaptation. We have to start talking about peace building and uh, building up governments that are responsive to their people's needs. Right, those basic capacities, um, we, we forget sometimes that that's such a vital part of this question. But finances too. Uh, Kathy, we're gonna get to you in a minute. I wanna spend some time with that that case study you want to show and to talk about the uh, justice questions here. But uh, let's start with Simon. And uh, you know, one point that's important to me, I think, is that there's, it feels like there's two flavors of vulnerability in the world right now. One is the injustice, the one imposed on people. And the one is just through uh, disregard for known risk. Uh, the situation in like Blessum, Germany, I, I posted this to make the point in rich places, vulnerability gets built. The systemic vulnerability that puts, you know, poor people in, pla in places where that are too hot or too flood prone. But this was just such a glaring financial failure, a failure of just simple, in a country that's supposedly super sophisticated, the second, the, the biggest economy in, in, in Europe. And they, they had a sand and gravel pit that, that was missed in the picture that got all around the internet. Tens of millions of posts was the one on the left. It looks terrible. It looks like some natural disaster, some epic and biblical one. And then you look at the right. I, I went on Google Maps and they built a pit in a floodplain next to a town. So uh, maybe Simon, if you could talk a little bit about what's the role of, of the financial world in um, getting us at least somewhat out of this morass of, of uh, risk. Um, and you can talk a little bit about, just lay the groundwork by saying who you are and, and what you do. Sure, yeah. So Sorry. Um, uh, no, no problem. I, I'm Simon Young and I work with, uh, for Willis Taz Watson in, in the Climate and Resilience Hub, which is a kind of a cross business team. But Willis Taz Watson is a, um, a risk advisory company um, that they're, you know, uh, in one part, it's uh, insurance and reinsurance, but there are also, excuse me, um, investment advisory, uh, human resources, benefits um, advisory as well. And what we do in the Climate and Resilience Hub is kind of bring all of those different elements together and focus on uh, on climate and resilience issues. Um, and so, um, and it, it's really interesting to explore that, that you know, the cross-business applications of this as a physical scientist i've i've always been more on the on the physical risk side um but understanding the uh the the needs of um you know managing um managing pe the people side of the business the uh the health health implications through through benefits programs etc is is really intriguing and um and it's and and, and on the investment side as well the flow of of capital around the uh, the global financial system is uh, is driven in, to a substantial degree by you know uh, asset managers um, around the world, and this goes uh, both for the for the global north as well as the global south, and um, and so you know having access to those those asset managers and um, and and helping them to uh, to better understand. The implications of, of climate change, but also social justice, um, is becoming an increasingly uh, kind of 
co-equal part of that uh, of the overall narrative. And I, I would, you know, I would state that the environment, what used to be, you know, ESG issues at, at the corporate level, which were maybe got half a page in the annual report, are now front and center and um, starting to be to to drive um, CEO incentives, board board uh, strategic um, planning sessions, etc. So we've seen a real change over the last couple of years, uh, driven by the climate crisis, but um, but definitely more broad than that. So that's, I think that that's encouraging. Uh, and, and what we're trying to do in the hub is to uh, is to kind of bring all of that together. Um, but my, my interest in, in flood, um, flood mapping and, and, um, and modeling is, is kind of that there are two parts to it. One is uh, and Beth mentioned earlier the, the Dartmouth Flood Observatory. Um, I I was using that 20 years ago uh, when I first got into this space. And um, uh, flood modeling f for other natural catastrophes, um, to understand them, the hazard, you mentioned the hazard, um, Andy, and to understand the hazard, we've been using physical, um, physical models, uh, catastrophe risk modeling, we call it in the insurance world. And that's come, you know, it's been mainstreamed over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and flooding had been the one where it was always the most difficult to, to get to a good place. And, um, you know, Beth and I have, have talked a lot about this over the years that uh, flood modeling is hard to do. And, um, and it's, uh, it's something that uh, I've always felt that if you actually had a picture of the flood footprint for a given event, uh, you were you were hugely better off than you were trying to model that event from uh, from rainfall, um, primarily from rainfall. You maybe got some some river flow data as well to help, but right. um, but in the in the global south, that's it's very rare that you've even got good rainfall data, let alone stream uh, river flow data. So. So modeling modeling floods is really difficult, and and therefore having these uh, this this historical database, uh, robust, high resolution, um, as an input to understanding the flood risk in a particular place on the ground anywhere in the world is is incredibly uh, important to uh, to get a better understanding of risk. And until you understand the risk, you can't really effectively manage it, and that goes for both, you know, adaptation, um, risk prevention, uh, planning, uh, urban planning, um, but also for insurance. And it's critical that we understand what the what the risk profile is, what the historical risk is, to be able to put a price on that risk and therefore uh, get a uh, insurance for that risk. Let's talk briefly. I think this was mentioned in the paper, uh, Beth, um, and then we'll get to Kathy in South Africa. Um, uh, and I, I've been focusing more and more on this issue of the streetlight effect, not just in science, but in journalism. You know, we tend to cover what's convenient and science tends to focus w on places where there's data. And one of the, I think one of the next steps you have, or you identify in the paper, or at least the gaps are identified in the paper include where there aren't data, as Simon just mentioned. And I'm just posting from my, my friends at the, uh, the new security to be, oh no, Climate Security Center um, had gotten into this. How big a deal is this going forward? If the places that have the least capacity, have the least governance, are the most at risk, and maybe Salim, you could weigh in this, on this too. Um, how much of this background work is really the, the, the work? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, in, in the area that I work on, which is on adaptation to climate change uh, in the most vulnerable communities in the most vulnerable countries, that's absolutely it. To just give you one um, indicator, um, there, there, there is now, as you know, global finance flowing from the global level uh, to developing countries. Um, there's this uh, totemic $100 billion a year that's supposed oh, to be provided, right. <laughs> which they haven't done yet, but uh, they've, they've given in the order of 79 or 80 billion. But the demand from the developing countries, particularly the vulnerable developing countries, was that half of it should go for adaptation and half for mitigation. In fact, 80% has gone for mitigation in the big countries like India, China, Brazil, and only 20% for adaptation in the vulnerable countries like Bangladesh and others. But even more importantly and interestingly, has uh, uh, actually come to these countries, only 10% of that, which is 2% of the global, has actually reached the most vulnerable communities because it's not easy to get to them. Even governments, you know, are not able right. to reach the most uh, um, uh, uh, vulnerable citizens. And that's true actually for all countries, including Absolutely. rich countries like the United States, you know, who are the most vulnerable? It's the poor people living in the slums, in the cities and in, you know, Native American uh, pe uh, populations and colored populations. So the vulnerable are always the least able and the least looked after and the least prioritized in any governance system. And right. that's true globally as well as at the national level. So it's a big, big issue. And so the, the final point I'll make is that one of the things that I find very um, potentially very useful is this kind of fine-grained information that can be reached to us directly. And, and as Beth says, you know, the, the, the Rohingya camps right now, uh, they need that information. They need it in time, very specific. And the technology is now getting there to provide it. And that would be extremely useful, extremely useful. We still need intermediaries like myself or other agencies uh, to sort of bring that information to them. But but we have a footprint there. We, we can do that if we get that information. And so I think technology has a much greater um, utility if it's made available to those most vulnerable uh, communities in those most vulnerable countries. And at, at the other end, enabling them or people working with them to be able to understand, interpret, and utilize that information in real time. That is a, a, a potentially a game changer in helping them deal with these issues. Uh, and particularly in the, clim in the climate change context, of, you know, as, as Jan Bartel said, a, a longer term time horizon, not just emergency needs, but a longer term time horizon of making themselves less vulnerable over time. So Beth, you, you know, you're at that intersection of data uh, and and impact. You talk, you worked with Google on this, and and uh, other big players. Uh, several of you do, and and Kathy, I, I promise you, next we're going to get into. Well, actually, bef let's get to these big systemic questions in a minute. I want to get back to those. The uh, this again a granular example. So on, I'm going to pull up the uh, relevant slides. You've been very patient. Um, Give me one second. 
So, Kathy, just tell us how you got to be you, you know, in 30 seconds. <laughs> what what well, drew you to this? This is a tough issue. It, it's like, you know, climate scientists have owned this issue for decades. The, the IPCC was launched by climate scientists, and it was all about the climate and not about these underlying factors. So what pulled you into that really hard part, Kathy? Well, I'm a geographer and I'm in a school of built environment and development studies and I live and work in the city of Durban. And Durban's an amazing laboratory for all of these mm -hmm. issues. So Durban's been a, a leading climate change Absolutely. city under Deborah Roberts. So there's been a lot of experimentation and experimental governance. But I think in South Africa generally, the same is true in the city of Cape Town, is that there's always been a very strong understanding that that climate is is so so integrally linked to the development challenges that we face, and that you can't address these climate challenges without understanding the underlying socioeconomic and political challenges that we face. And so I suppose from the spaces that we work in, we've learned from the ground up that we've got to try and understand this this integration between climate science and and for me obviously it's it's cities. So it's always interesting to me that when you look at climate science, and um, I know there's a lot of work being done now to think about climate science in relation to cities and how cities can play a role, but it's almost like a surprise that all of this is happening in cities. And um, so for me, the interesting thing is, is that climate and climate change has always cut across all of the um, urban work that I've been doing. I work a lot in informal settlements and in peri-urban areas. And so climate's just become another factor that plays into the space. And so that's really, I suppose, what's drawn me into climate climate change. And, and, I, and I'm really fascinated by this work that Beth's done and her team, because it is the importance of getting these amazing maps and th this amazing imagery that can really help people. But what really drew me to, you know, you'd sent me an email and I read the paper and then I was just completely drawn into thinking about you know, how do you give this data then meaning? Because it's all very well to communicate this knowledge, but we've also worked on ideas of data justice for development. So if the data doesn't flow to the right places or connecting to the right spaces, then how do you make that change? So then people remain vulnerable or um, nothing really changes. They just become more resilient. They absorb more yeah. and more of these impacts of the floods. So we've been doing this experimental work in Durban, linking communities, ourselves, researchers as sort of intermediaries and the municipality to try and build capacity across all actors to try and address um, flood risk. And so we're working really at the sort of gap that I think what was raised in the, in the paper is that with this big, the big sort of floods, you often miss what happens in urban areas because in a lot of urban areas, it's the smaller scale but ongoing chronic flood risk that really undermines quality of life for people. And also, I think it's said in the paper, Beth, you can correct me, but I think it's harder to map this kind of urban flood risk in some ways, because I think it's at a different scale. And so what we've been doing is working with um, Etiquini Municipality, particularly with Jeff Tooley, who's the catchment management um, in the catchment management department around, and uh, Sean O'Donoghue around climate change. <laughs> and with informal settlement communities to try and address flood risk. And this is a case study of a community, of a highly vulnerable community. It's on the bottom of a floodplain of quite a relatively small river. You can see the community is based um, pretty much completely within the floodplain. You can see the blue zone mm. there is, is the area that's at risk to flooding. But if you look at the little gray area, 
that is this part of the settlement where the first settlement first started. So in fact, ah, Mamsutu, who actually started the settlement, located it in the most perfect position when she invaded that land to try and get access to resources in the city. Hmm. Because the space where the settlement started was actually above the flood risk um, zone. But as the pressures of urbanization, and that's why I raised the question, is this about economic development or actually lack of sustainable economic development? Because that's why people get pushed into these areas. Mm. As the settlement's grown and it's continued to grow, and in fact, what's interesting is it grows every time there's a flood, um, is that you can see the risk emerging. And this is just a case study of a very serious flood we had on the 21st of April in 2019. Mm. And what we do is we get um, early flood warning systems from our South African Weather Service. Jeff Tooley has established, um, he uses the um, FUSE system and he's got a radar in the Palmy catchment that actually is monitoring at very fine detail the storm cells that are developing. So we have this much bigger data that's telling us about the weather. And then we have Jeff Tooley's department actually monitoring the localized storm cells to see where they're moving. And then we have a WhatsApp group with the community. Um, and what's interesting is in the beginning, the community wasn't actually on Wi-Fi. So we couldn't have a WhatsApp group. We, they had cell phones. So I used to get all the information and then phone the community about these early warning systems. And you can see some of the WhatsApps between Jeff Tooley, myself, Sean, mm. and the community talking about the flood risk coming. And then as they started to get access to more WhatsApp and more data, you'll see in the next image, I think, they start sending us real-time photos that come oh, back to us help us to see the, the levels of flood. And um, they start, and we can see, and we also have worked out, um, and there's river, there's river monitoring data on this river, but we've also known when a certain amount of rivers fallen high up in the catchment, and we've got formal rate pairs that are reporting into us on those levels of, of water falling, then we know when it goes through past a certain point, then the flood risk is going to become quite extensive for the community. So then we start warning people and people start moving back away from the river. But you can see with the, the houses adjacent to the river, there's very, very high risk. So we're working at this very fine scale to try and set up these early flood warning systems. This was the impact of that flood in mm. 2019, which was really devastating. And we flew, um, you can see that um, houses had fallen into the river. Amazingly, no one lost their lives. Um, it was just a report of a child that was missing, but thankfully that child was was found. But people lost their possessions, they lost their houses, they lose their ID books, their clinic cards for their medication. Sure. Many people are on chronic medication for HIV AIDS, for example. And then you mm. can see that we flew these drone maps. So if you look at this one, this is just before the flood. We'd luckily phone, flown a ah. drone map image of the settlement. And then if you look at the next image, you can see if you if you just go back to the one before, focus on the tree. Uh, yeah, go to the next one down sorry oh, sorry if you focus you focus oh, on the tree uh yeah one yeah if you focus on the tree you'll see how much how much of the settlement was ripped away in that part of the river so uh, i'll go back i'll go back in a second here I see. yeah oh, so yeah, there you sure. go. So if you look at the tree there and now you look at the tree you can see how much of the settlement we lost right. in that um, and the important thing to look on these drone maps is this open space here which is really interesting in the settlement so the community was using that for farming um, it's an amazing process where the landowner said they couldn't live on that land so they never invaded that land but when mm. we had this massive flood, obviously all of those households adjacent to the river lost their, their land. And then if you look to the next space, that green space still remained. And that's where everybody then right. invaded to try and rebuild their houses. Right. And 
the important thing here, when I thought about that paper and I thought about what we're talking about here about insurance or we need capital to come in quickly after a flood or we need governance systems, the challenge for communities like that is, you know, what happens after a very serious flood event like this? And it's not at the scale at which we're seeing the, the kind of mapping that Beth's paper is talking about. Right. But these are micro scale events in a sense that keep undermining the ability of people to, to build a life for themselves in the city. And in the case of Durban, we do have a disaster risk management system. But essentially what happened in this flood is that the community actually had the capacity to, to address the issues of the flood. They were the ones that took the records of who had lost their houses. They were the ones who worked out with um, community members who'd lost their IDs and their medical cards and so on. And so there's incredible resilience in these communities and they pick it up and they work they, they work together to try and build the data that's needed to respond to the flood. Hmm. So the, the critical issue here is that with, with a city that's got some got a lot of capacity actually, but needs to, to spread that capacity right across the city, what we've learned is that there's amazing resilience within these communities. And if you can build state citizen partnerships, then you can start to address these flood risks. But you know, those systems those systems often fail. So it's really a question of understanding the extreme vulnerability of communities like this, but also to build in ideas about their incredible resilience. And I'm sure you see that in Bangladesh as well. Right. So, you know, how do we understand these problems? And I think in the in the mapping, um, what's interesting is it raises question about these population dynamics, about settlements, but not so much about questions of governance, of why those settlements are there, you know, what's, what are the kind of drivers that are increasingly moving people into these spaces? And in, in a city like Durban, you've got lots of informal settlements along the riverway. So we're using these localized mapping situations to try and create these hotspots so that when there is a, a flood event, the city knows where to send its resources to. And the last image that I had in those slides, I don't know if you still got it, for me oh, was yeah. so poignant because, as I said to you, after the flood, you know, you think of the politics and the political promises of, of states and governments to, to assist people and to address vulnerability. But in that last slide, you can see um, it was just so amazing to me. I was walking through the space after the flood. I mean, people literally stopped rebuilding their houses a day later. And this flood had happened three days after our national government elections. And this community member, you can see a One South Africa for All. You can see ANC posters. You can see huh. Democratic Alliance posters, EFF posters. And the person was literally building his house with the political promises of these different, different political parties. They rebuilt their house with election posters from the national government election <laughs> before. And to me, it was like, you, you know, these are your promises. I'm building my house with your promises because you're actually not here, here to help me. So... You know, wow. it's this question of all these multiple aspects of vulnerability and what that means in relation to settlement and then in relation to flood and at what scale we're looking at it. So, yeah, that's just some ideas from what we're working on in Durban. Well, I have to say there, this has raised uh, several really important questions at, at these different scales. Um, and I think this, this listener's uh, question gets at one of them. You've all described, and I think the paper had a line about social media in it, uh, in that concluding section. Uh, there's a, uh, we think about monitoring as a top-down thing, but there seems to be very much a possibility of a bottom-up uh, yeah. aspect as well. So each pixel is telling a story, essentially. And and uh, Beth, I don't know if you have an answer for that question. You know, how does this relate to uh, the, the community scale? What's the, the, the possibilities going forward? And we'll yeah. go around here with some ideas. 
Yeah, so we typically don't work at the individual or community scale because, and I actually want to hear JM, um, Simon and Salim will have a lot to say about this, especially kind of Simon, as we think about what are the systems that we need to build um, yeah. systemically beyond, a I, to me, placing the responsibility on individuals to respond to their own flooding, especially when we're talking about the most vulnerable countries and communities in the world. I'm not sure if that's quite the right way to go about it, we need to build structures and systems. So to me, the exciting part of satellite data is not just what we do individually, but what John Martin was talking about. How do we change the way that we do relief response and recovery to target who actually needs aid, to depoliticize aid? I actually started off as a disaster relief responder in El Salvador, seeing people not get aid because they didn't vote for the right political party. So wow. can we use data and transparency to democratize the way aid is thought about and delivered? So we typically don't just deliver maps to individual people. We work with governments because we believe that that's kind of the way to create more systemic change. Um, we're working right now with the World Food Program and Cox's Bazaar, <laughs> the Rohingya refugee camps. Actually, a lot of the Cloud Street team was up late into the night tasking a commercial high-res radar satellite called Capella, a new satellite that was launched by another company we work with, very high-resolution data to try to help map out where recovery and response is needed so that they can do what John Martin was talking about, figure out who's affected, get the aid out, and, and get those numbers right. Um, I'd love to hear more from Simon, too, on this issue. How do we rethink how we transfer risk and build financial systems that support people in a new way and satellite data can be can be used to do that and fill a lot of gaps so yes we need more information for people to respond themselves but i think we need to shift the burden of responsibility onto onto our governments and financial system and we've got to build new systems to do that so uh yeah let's hear let's hear from both of you on that um, maybe uh, so um I, I can pick up if you um yeah. you know jean martin mentioned the uh the the ability to focus resources where they're where they're most needed, and the you know the real time data that comes from from this work, um, and that's that's really really important. Um, but um, and WFP have been at the forefront of this. But but what we're doing from the insurance industry side is actually also tying these uh, the tools uh, and the the kind of um, the, the transparency and the obligation that a contract brings um, to to help make this um, more uh, optimized to take to, to depoliticize de it, um, you know, to, to formulate the promise that that isn't kept by politicians, as Kathy was just was just so uh, so wonderfully um, expounding. Um, so what what the insurance world does is to uh make make all of that um kind of rigorous and enforceable uh, and legally binding um under contract and obviously there's a big gap between applying that to to the most vulnerable in in emerging economies and you know the the big reinsurance companies in europe but um but but there is a process that we can go through to bring the 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 upside of that um kind of contractual formality if you like but also the other piece of this is actual, you know, availability of capital when you need it, um, and insurance is is nothing if it isn't getting capital quickly to the right place um, when it's needed. And businesses insure themselves because they don't want to keep 
um, enough money on their balance sheet to 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 fund recovery after a big you know a catastrophic event to their business the same with home insurance homeowners insurance in the global north um so uh, we can do the same for the humanitarian system uh jean martin knows better than anybody um that you know the humanitarian system operates um suboptimally because money is hard to come by um and governments you know they'll, they'll put a certain amount of money wfp has a certain amount of money up front but raising that money after an event um, is a slow process. Um, and so, you know, if we can, and the slower that process, the more impactful a given event will be because recovery is, is takes time, you know, time to get going. Local resources aren't sufficient to do that properly. So, um, and we see this over and over rapid, rapid financing after a disaster is five to 10 times more effective than uh, post disaster. So we're starting to bring this into the humanitarian um, space now and using insurance capital um, to, to, for that uh, very early flow of funds. Um, while the red tape, let's, red tape is a kind of a, a reasonable general term for the slowness at which the humanitarian financing architecture at scale operates. Um, and so, and, and, and insurance capital is very efficient um, at deploying itself around the world and being able to respond um, to a disaster in Bangladesh, um, you know, because it's unlikely that there's a big earthquake in Tokyo or or San Francisco or, you know, Miami is getting hit by a, by a hurricane at the same time. So deployment of capital is very efficient in that in that way. And um, and that brings really, you know, some useful innovations. And, I, and I'll just close by saying that that for me, um, and as, as Salim uh, and Jean-Martin know, a lot of the insurance tools that we're using are, are, um, are in the form of what's called parametric insurance, which triggers on the on the hazard, the occurrence of the hazard and the intensity of the hazard rather than the actual loss, uh, because mm. understanding what, what the loss is, is is quite difficult, especially in emerging economies. Uh, and parametric flood insurance has been waiting for this kind of data that Cloud to Street are now generating. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do parametric flood insurance without knowing where the flood water is. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we don't know what where the flood water is without having that that um, that uh, satellite data at, at good enough resolution. Over the years, and, and I know that Beth and Cloud to Street are working on this, um, kind of enhancing that with local, you know, WhatsApp groups um, and, and images okay, I am here and there's flood water here or there isn't. Uh, this is how deep it is. That's that, That'll get integrated over, over the coming few years um, and, um, and we'll definitely improve it. But um, but we need this kind of information to really um, to socialize these these parametric forms of insurance for uh, for flood in particular. <laughs> We've done it for earthquake and, and, and typhoon, hurricane, cyclone uh, reasonably well. Um, but but rain and, and and flood have been a real real challenge. Mm -hmm. There's there's a couple of questions coming in. I'm going to feature in a minute. One of them is perfect for uh, Salim. Um, but I, I want to get hear from Jean Jean Martin on this too. But I want to push back a little bit on this idea of the um, limited utility at the personal or community scale, because the one thing that does can drive government change is community. Uh, voices and mm -hmm. I think about this I, I think I first thought about this when Zika was spreading you know 
social media campaigns around standing water for the uh, mosquitoes that carry uh, dengue and and, uh, and and Zika can have an impact. Uh, and well, we've seen it with um, the pandemic. Of course, the polarization gets terrible. But community uh, and in, in Nepal, in the earthquake, uh, wrote about uh, Facebook groups and and Twitter was a crucial way for communities to say, hey, we need a helicopter here. So there is a lot of potential for, I think, direct utility mm -hmm. journalists. We haven't talked about journalists too yet either. You know, the Earth Journalism Network, um, uh -huh. normal, normalizing, flipping the narrative in journalism, I think, mm -hmm. is one thing we could work on with this data too. Absolutely. You got a lot of coverage for the paper, mm -hmm. but who out there writes about flood risk as opposed <laughs> to climate change? You know, we, we write about the climate crisis, climate crisis. But we don't write about the vulnerability crisis. So, so, so Salim, maybe from you a little on that, and, and Jean Martin, and we'll start to conclude by the one question I'm going to throw at everyone here before we close is: What can we do together that mm -hmm. none of us could do individually to to drive this forward? But Salim, you know, what do you Great, think? Thank you. Part? Great. Thank you very much. Uh, so, a couple of uh, additional building on the conversation that we're having here. Uh, which, in my view, is a sort of how do we link the bottom up with the top down, yeah. uh, both in terms right. of knowledge and decision making. Yeah. And, you know, I loved Kathy's example of Durban, where the people themselves know what to do. They they mm -hmm. they have created their own, uh, perhaps not uh, very sophisticated, but systems to work. And everybody does that. Mm -hmm. they, they do have mm -hmm. some capacity. So we should not think of them as having zero capacity mm -hmm. and they have things have to be done for them. They, mm -hmm. they need to be. Uh, empowered to be able to do things more. And mm -hmm. so it's about how do we enable that to happen? The The other dimension that I find, you know, the, particularly important for my work is the time dimension. It's not just, as I said, about emergencies only. Going forward with climate change, these are going to be the norm. These are not just emergencies. They're, they're, they're going to be regular things. And so we need to be building in these longer term capacities and one very important uh, group that uh, uh, Kathy and I represent are universities. Uh, to me, they are they play they can play potentially a very important role in learning from crowd to street, learning the technology, linking up with the local communities in their towns and cities, and that's what my my university does. So we actually mm -hmm. run a a network of universities in Bangladesh called Gobeshana, where we've been bringing together all our universities. And, and building up our capacities to do this. And now we run a network of universities in the least developed countries called the LDC Universities Consortium, where we're helping each other in bottom-up knowledge and particularly working with the communities, which are our communities. They're our neighbors. They're people in our towns and cities. And the top-down satellite imagery uh, at a more uh, sophisticated and granular scale that we can interpret on behalf of the community. So, you know, the the intermediary knowledge system, in my mind, is a very important one that links the global knowledge with the local knowledge. Um, and universities, I feel, have a very important role to play there uh, in being that bridge between national, local, national, and global. Let me stop. I, I couldn't agree more with you on that point. Um... And the new Columbia Climate School is is uh, President Bollinger talks. He describes this as the fourth purpose. Uh, uh, Adam Sobel, a climate scientist here, who has moved increasingly into adaptation work from basic climate science 
he recently wrote about what he calls the importance of, of usable science. He said he's moving into it, adaptation, yep, applicability to make a difference. And, and, you know, we know enough about CO2. We know enough about the long-term trends and you can quibble about what, what fraction of a hurricane was intensified by uh, the CO2 global warming. But again, when you shift back to vulnerability, yep. the local communities have a lot of work to do or, or a lot of options, a lot of opportunity. Uh, Beth, we'd love to hear from you again on this. Uh, the, you, you set the ball rolling here. I've been focused on this issue, but your paper really crystallized this. So uh, thinking about what Salim said and that question of the interface between the satellite down and the community up, what's the next step? Oh, I feel like I want to hear actually Jean Martin's response to that question. For I sure. think it's probably more important than mine um, because I was actually watching um, what you posted on Twitter last night, Andy, a, a video clip of Salim talking, mm -hmm. I think it was COP five or six years ago. And you open with this quote, Salim, um, that scientists don't do, and you gotta link up with the doers. And I found that so right and so inspiring. And yes, universities and scientists have this have a really important role in generating knowledge, but what, what really needs to happen is we gotta work with the doers, you know? Um, none of these satellite maps and information matter unless they're deployed, as, as you're saying, Salim, by, by actors and leadership in institutions and also on the ground. We've had a lot of experience at Cloud to Street making maps that never get used until working with John Martin and figuring out maybe it's not just about the map. <laughs> It's about working with people, getting them to understand and trust satellite data. How does the information flow in government system work? Maybe people don't want to zoom around a satellite map. Maybe they actually want a distilled number of who's affected where. And so I think we're sometimes naive as scientists thinking that we can just put data on a website and that it will make change. That's actually not how it works. That's a great start. But it's not the last, sometimes people talk about the last mile problem. Oh, like mm -hmm. you make data and then decisions happen. That's not a mile, it's a thousand miles. <laughs> and it yeah. takes building so much trust. It takes social movements and investing in human relationships to make sure that that data is used. And I wanna hear from John Martin because that's really one of the people that we've learned this, this lesson from. Yeah, sure, I'll, I mean, I'll jump in, but the, there are a couple of handshakes that need to take place, and one of them is certainly between the science and, and, and practitioner community. And um, there, there are spaces to, to do exactly that. Uh, at WFP, for instance, we have a, an innovation accelerator in Munich. Uh, it's a, a space where universities, uh, private companies, humanitarian practitioners work together. And we actually went with uh, uh, a few staff members from Cloud to Street plus WFP to, to brainstorm how we would work together and use uh, their data for um, uh, flood response. So that's that's one of the handshakes that needs to happen. Uh, an another one certainly needs to be between formal and informal early warning systems. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. When I worked in West Africa on drought response, so not on flooding, um, there have been very sophisticated drought response early warning systems since the 1980s. Uh, you, you all probably know about FuseNet, the USA right. uh, early mm -hmm. warning system. Mm -hmm. And what uh, the Sahelians, the West Africans would tell us is, look, you, um, the Westerners have set up early warning systems, we have our own informal systems. Mm -hmm. And we need to see how, where's the handshake between those two systems. And then the, maybe the final one is, is and, and I'm sorry, Simon's not, not here anymore. It's really that relationship between finance and uh, 
um, mm. and, and response on the ground. Um, I would love to see more money in place before anything happens. Uh, of course, okay. if, if there's a disaster and then we have to run around, we can do it, but it's not going to be as impactful as money being there uh, in the country before disaster strikes. And I, I, we're seeing examples of that. Uh, by the way, there's been, uh, uh, this was a, a few months ago in Bangladesh. Again, Bangladesh, we're talking about Bangladesh a lot. Mm -hmm. but, uh, Ocho was able to, um, this is the United Nations Office for Humanitarian Affairs, was able to disperse uh, money ahead mm -hmm. uh, of, of, of the, the peak floods and WP was able to use that cash to get uh, resources into the pockets of very vulnerable uh, people. So we were talking about a lot about predictive analytics here in New York right now. I'd love to see uh, more of that happen. So let's let's talk about these handshakes. And, and for, for on, on the finance, perhaps, um, the services that we were able to get from cloud to street, they're not free. Uh, the high resolution mapping, it's not free. It's not something a uh, resource poor government can afford. So if we're, if we're talking about insurance and financing, we also need to talk about making those services available to all the governments of the entire world so that they're able to, to make these calls for themselves. Thanks a lot. Wow. Um, this gets back to something that Salim said earlier, which is about the current flows of financing for adaptation. And it, I was looking at the adaptation gap report that the UN, UN UNEP puts out, mm -hmm. which gets a lot less attention than the emissions gap report. Mission, yeah. <laughs> Again, we focus on emissions. So, so everything seems biased still against the kinds of flows that you all were just talking about. In other words, how do you have a ready access to um, uh, information or finance mm -hmm. at the community scale where it's needed with that streetlight effect that makes things tend to go to where their people have the most capacity. How do we unbias the priorities, uh, even under the Paris Agreement, which seems still, even within that chunk of money, it's if it's just going to clean energy, that's not yep. solving anybody's exactly. vulnerability problem. Absolutely. Unless, unless it's for clean cooking, which, which <laughs> but that can sometimes be uh, propane. Anyway, that's a whole another story. So, so what can we do? Is there a way to make the message here resonate enough so that when people think about the climate crisis, they increasingly understand the vulnerability crisis? Maybe this is like a going sort of parting question to all of you. Uh, Salim, uh, I know I, you're eager to get yeah, at this. Point. Yeah, if you don't mind, I, I'll have to leave in a few minutes. Yeah. So let me just share with you something that I think is a very uh, a promising opportunity that I'm pretty sure none of you know about. Uh, and that is uh, a group of countries called the Climate Vulnerable Forum. There are nearly 50 of them. It was created 11 years ago by President mm -hmm. Nasheed when he was president of the Maldives. And it's continued ever since then. And every two years, a new uh, one, uh, an another head of government takes over. Right now, the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, Sheikh Hasina, is the chair for two years, which will include COP26 in Glasgow and then COP27 in Africa. And um, under that group, they also have a group of finance ministers who have come together. Now, finance ministers don't go to COPs. They don't know climate change. Uh, they, this is all jargon to them. But they know their own budgets. They have budgets. And they know their own um, vulnerability to the impacts of climatic and weather events. Right. And so, And they're losing more and more money for these. And they know that. Don't have, they don't need to be convinced. There you are. You've got them. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And so uh, what we are trying to do with them, and this might be something worth 
following up on Beth uh, later, and all of you if you're interested, is how do we advise them to use their own budgets to be able to get this information in real time uh, and make it available uh, to their own government systems, the you know the formal systems that they have, and also the informal systems that Ajamartan uh, mentioned, which is more of the bottom-up community-driven. And in Bangladesh, for example, we have some very very good NGOs. You know, there's a the world's biggest NGO is called BRAC. It's a Bangladeshi NGO. Right. Um, and and you know they have uh, capacities and they can deliver very very sophisticated to the to the last mile as it were and leaving no one behind these are actually practiced in bangladesh we a very poor country but we are very very good at delivering these services to the poorest people and <clears throat> we're using bangladesh as an example to then um, socialize this in the other vulnerable countries with the v20 finance ministers so this is no longer demanding you know the the polluting countries have to pay us 100 billion they say that all that in the in the international context but they have to deal with the problem is uh, and he just said you know, they, they have to deal with their own uh, citizens and look after them <clears throat> and it resonates they're quite quite interested and so uh, something to follow up you know arrange a, a, maybe a presentation for them uh, in one of their meetings well, yeah, and I could event, you know, I can do another session on here about this as well. Absolutely, um, we could do that. I, one of my favorite examples of um, getting ahead of the curve has little to do with flood mitigation, and it was about something that Brack did. Uh, let me just see if I could show this briefly. Have it queued up. It was uh, examining agriculture in Bangladesh. And saying, wow, you know, chicken farms all get wiped out. That's all right. their infrastructure gets they wiped out. Ducks, yeah. <laughs> and they did small-scale financing for ducks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which, if that doesn't illustrate the potential, <laughs> when you when you take a systems approach to a problem, mm -hmm. I don't know what does. Uh, so is that kind of what you're talking about? Because it's absolutely. not just about absolutely. climate. It's about the mm -hmm. pure possibility of development, resilient, adaptive development. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you for that. And we're, we're coming to the end. I know everyone has much to do. And so maybe just a last round of, uh, I clearly, I see several things I can do, among them a follow-up post um, on what Climate Vulnerable Forum might do with this kind of thing. And maybe getting some people from uh, Google and others in, into a conversation as well. But is there something we can all do together? You know, how can we help Kathy with your work? Um, and, or, you know, is there something you, all could do with someone else here on the screen together that we can't do separately. Maybe, maybe Kathy, you're sort of a last word from South Africa. It's pretty late there, and thank you for doing being. Yeah, on. no, it's fine. I'm, I mean, I think the the critical thing is to think about these this integration of this top down and the bottom up approaches because that also raises question of who's doing the governing of climate change and who's doing the governing of climate adaptation. And sometimes when you have these top-down systems, you completely miss the ability and um, agency of the of the urban poor, which is just amazing. I mean, we work on climate adaptation in informal settlements and the kinds of things that people are doing in partnership in some cases with the state, but also with intermediaries. Um, universities are bridges and those are important mm -hmm. spaces. Mm -hmm. So how do we, you know, for me, what's really exciting about all this work is how do we integrate this top-down high-level stuff that's so amazing but also the knowledge and the tacit and experiential knowledge. And in fact, sometimes the expert knowledge that actually exists on the ground um, because there's so much knowledge on the ground. And I think Absolutely. when we start putting those 
at those two scales, and also um, thinking about the integration between formality and informality. Because what I was showing you is in informal systems. And in informal systems, there's ways of governing, there's ways of understanding things that often formal systems don't understand or appreciate. And so we don't want to be passing things down into these spaces. We want to be working and co-producing knowledge together. And that for me is what's exciting about this high levels and um, amazing stuff that we've seen, but also what's happening on the ground and coming up. And that's what we try and focus on in Durban. And so it would be great to yeah to have more conversations and to learn. I've learned so much from all of you, and that's really what this is all about: learning from each other, so that we mm-hmm. can we can build this more sustainable, rather than resilient, actually more sustainable world. Uh, maybe this is a way. I was just rereading the UNAP adaptation gap report, and I was so discouraged. I know you all are. Uh, there's like you know most of the countries of the world. Have put up these pledges, they have plans, but when you look at the graph of implementability, mm. the capacity for it, they're mostly in the red, you know, the, yep. the majority. And this is rich and poor countries. And so maybe what, what Kathy was just articulating, if, and what actually, Salim, what you were saying too about fundamental development mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as an engine for resilience could help to start to fill that implementa- in, in, implementability gap. Right. Well, thank you all. T- for being part of this today, uh, Andy, rather, can I have a, yeah. can I have a, a last word on always? Uh, we could go offer. for another hour if you like. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have an offer for all of you, and and I'll be happy to follow up. Uh, I mentioned this consortium of universities called Gobeshana. So, one mm. of the things we do every January is we hold a big conference. It used to be an in-person one, but as of this year, we've gone virtual, and the focus is on what we call locally-led adaptation and building Mm -hmm. networks of what we call Mm -hmm. local adapters. So I'd love to have all of us together uh, think of designing something for next January at our conference. Uh, Something like this, Andy, maybe you could do a a, a, a discussion here. We did it online. We ran it seven days, 24-7. We did Mm -hmm. more than 107 sessions from all over the world. So, uh, you know, I'm inviting each of you individually to uh, maybe do a session plus a, a roundtable discussion like this. That you got me Afterward, signed up, but I'm, good. I'm there. So, so uh, uh, open invitation, and I'll follow up on that. Great. Wow, and Beth. Let me just give you one last word. Seeing as again, you were the spark for all this. Uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, I think um, I think we have there. We have data. We have satellite data to know where risk is happening. Lots of improvements could be made there. Lots of good science to do. But what's more important, I think, is to think about what are the actions we're going to take. And I think we probably know mostly what to do. A lot of exchange needs to happen. Some of the networks that Salim has built. Um, thinking about Bangladesh actually has some of the most innovative flood adaptation strategies in the world. Early warning systems and releasing money before floods happen. Bangladesh implemented that first. The first pilots on parametric flood insurance payouts to farmers, Bangladesh did that first. Mm. One of the countries that has most been able, Salim talked about, to reduce vulnerability and make sure that less people die every time it floods, 
Bangladesh did that. And so we have so much to learn from each other and especially from people like Salim in countries like Bangladesh who have experienced floods that I think we can implement in so many other places around the world. I think we maybe know what to do. We know how to build early warning systems, release financing, build financial systems for recovery and insurance. Kathy talked about informal settlements having so much knowledge and capacity to respond. And what we need to figure out, I think part of the key is making sure that we have the political will and financing to make it happen. JM, John Martin talked about, you know, if there could just be a little bit of money before the event happens, then we could build so much more resilience. So I think it's a challenge for us as a global community to think about how are we going to finance climate change adaptation and flood adaptation <laughs> and make sure that the people who are the most affected um, have financing at the community level and at the government level. When I was looking at uh, the list of countries receiving funding for climate change adaptation financing, I was shocked to see, as Salim said, how tiny those numbers were. Yeah. I mean, in our study, we found Central African Republic is where we expect the most increase in flood exposure from climate change. And it was country number 106 on that yeah. list, only expected to receive $10 million. That is not enough to finance, manage retreat and relocation that needs to happen, build early warning systems, forecast financing, insurance. I mean, all of this kind of suite of solutions that we talked about, we need to invest in and it will pay off. We know there's been so many studies that show for every dollar you spend on flood prevention and adaptation, you save $6 in recovery. So mm -hmm. yes, it's an upfront cost, but we need to do that. It's the right thing to do. It's the just thing to do. Um, and it will actually save us money in the end. So I hope that we all can focus on on how we can do that together. And thanks so much for all of you for being here. I've learned so much from, from your work over the years. And, and I'm on board. <laughs> I want my data to help. We'll follow so up. We'll follow up. <laughs> I'm showing one last slide that I pulled together just this morning just to kind of hammer home a key point here. In rich and poor countries, climate impacts are from vulnerability far more than climate change at this yep. moment still. Absolutely. And and it's the least discussed, I think, aspect of this mm -hmm. issue going forward. So thanks, uh, Salim Huck. Uh, thanks, uh, Jean-Martin Bauer, Simon Young, who had to leave earlier, Kathy Sutherland from South Africa, Beth Tellman moving to the University of Arizona. Great work with Cloud to Street and uh, more. Uh, and, and myself, uh, Andy Revkin, at Columbia's Climate School uh, Earth Institute and my my new revkin.bulletin.com publication, which is powered by Facebook in part. And so hopefully it'll start to spread in that area too and put some some signal out there amid all the noise. So thanks for being part of this. We'll, we'll continue, we'll do more. And um, Thank you so get, some, much. get some rest and keep your uh, energy up for the, the long battle ahead. Thank you. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Bye. Thank Take you, care. Andy. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Sustain What, a production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Mm -hmm.